Well, before we bring out today's amazing guest, I want to take a moment to invite you to an incredibly special event. Here we go. It's also an event that would work for you during these times of social distancing. So take doubling note now. Now you, you have no excuse not to be here. As you may have heard, my second book, it's called In Awe, went on sale just this past Tuesday. It trended throughout the week. Number one on various parts of Amazon, which is really cool to think about. It's a really cool book. As you know, the proceeds for the first week are being given to Big Brothers Big Sisters. So it's not only a beautiful book with a whole lot of insight in the book for you, but it's for a really worthy cause right now. After years of researching, writing, editing this book, and then a global pandemic arriving, well, even that can't stop us from celebrating its release. So my friends, here it is. This Friday, May 8th, I'll be hosting a virtual in-awe launch party. I'm going to say that again. This Friday, May 8th, I'm going to be hosting a virtual in-awe launch party, and you, my friend, are invited. I'll have some special surprise guests. I'll share some special stories about the book and a lot more. You won't want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. I'm already fired up. I feel like, I feel like a parent on Christmas Eve that can't wait for the following morning to guide the kids down the steps to show, them, to show them what's under the tree. It's going to be an awesome night. I want you to be there. It's going to be at 7 o'clock Central. You can learn all the details by visiting me right now at readinawe.com. I'll say it again. Get out those pens, the chalk, the markers, the typewriters, whatever, tattoo, art, man, whatever you got to do to write this down, do it now. Visit me at readinawe.com. You'll love the activities we have planned for you Friday night. So get ready for it. All right, my friends, that's enough celebrating tomorrow. Let's celebrate what's happening right now. On to today's episode, we go. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. In a career that has spanned more than 30 years, Stephen Curtis Chapman is the most awarded artist in Christian music history. He has sold 11 million albums. He's earned five Grammy Awards, had 49 number one radio hits. That's crazy. And I'm not done and 58 Golden Dove trophies. Stephen's going to talk today with us about his latest single. It's called Together. We'll get through this. He recorded it with a couple uh, people you may have heard of, Brad Paisley, Lauren Elena, Tasha Cobbs Leonard, among others. Well, when collaborating on this inspiring and uplifting project, this world-renowned artist saw the need to meet people where they are, this world that is looking at so much darkness, so much unknown, so much isolation, and to remind them that we are in this together. We need each other, and we'll get through it as one. It's a beautiful hit. He's going to talk about that during our episode. He's also going to talk about the beginning of his musical inspiration, how he began writing, some of the bumps along the way, the successes he's enjoyed, some tragedy that he's endured as a family, including the loss of his baby girl in a horrific accident, and yet this faith that guides him forward. It's going to be one of the most uplifting and, I think, timely conversations that you possibly can tune into. So today, 
Before you even listen to another word, tell your friends that you're listening to this, share this podcast with them, inspire them to join you on this journey because it's one, not only that it will benefit you, my friends, but it's going to benefit anyone else that tunes in with you. So uh, without further ado, this is an awesome conversation with a friend of mine, a guy that I have long admired. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend and now yours, his name, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Stephen, welcome to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. So honored and, and grateful to get to be with you for a little bit. Man, I have one guy in my life who is actually cool and knows people. His name is Michael Stewart. And he's invited me a couple times to say like, hey, John, who do you want to meet? Who do you want to get to know? Who do you want to have on your podcast? And anybody. I could have had anybody. And Stephen, there was only one name that I wanted, man. And today I get to sit across from him. It, it is you. I love your music. I love your heart. I love your story. I love your ups and I love what you've done with your downs. So really, thank you for, uh, for joining me on this, uh, on this afternoon. Absolutely, brother. Wow. Well, I'm uh, kind of blown away with that because you, have, you do have access to and have been with and spent time talking to a lot of uh, really influential and powerful people. So I don't know where I fit in, in that list at all, but I'm sure grateful that God's let my music and story and life be connected with yours. And uh, it's an honor. Well, but if you and I leave our homes right now and uh, touch base halfway to one another, we will be in Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> that's, a no way. Place, that's a good place to meet a friend i'm out of st louis you're just south of nashville yes, yes where it all began where the story began for me that's right so that that's where i like to begin things man i don't like to begin at the top of the charts i like to begin yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> just at the beginning the, the dawn of it all man so take us way back to paducah what, what was life like for you growing up in paducah kentucky you know it was uh it was awesome as far as I knew at the time. I look back now and say, you know, times were there. There were some, there were some tough times and tough things. But uh, so I grew up in a lot of music going on, bluegrass music. Of course, when you're growing up in Kentucky, you're going to hear some banjos and fiddles and and acoustic guitar. My dad was still is a great guitar player, uh, great bluegrass country folk singer, sang like like. Glenn Campbell sang back in those days. Uh, truly, if you heard him, you would actually agree agree with me. Um, sounded sound. He just had a great voice, and so he sang music on weekends. Played a lot of music. I was a little kid watching him and being fascinated with music, wanting to learn to play the guitar. Six years old, got my first guitar. Um, my dad sat me down, taught me Folsom Prison Blues. I learned my first song at six years old. Learning how to go to prison, you know. So we started kind of set the bar low right out of the gate. Um, and, but, but when I was about seven, uh, my family I had one older brother, my mom, my dad, um, went to church on occasion, but dad was playing music late Saturday night. So we didn't go to church on Sunday morning that much, but, um, we went, my mom would take me and my brother every Sunday, but dad usually didn't go, but we had a revival that came through our church. And as a little boy, all I really knew is something changed in my home after that. And we started going to church together regularly, but not just going to church. We were talking about God and a relationship with God and things like that in my home. And that was the reason that was so pivotal is, and I, my dad had grown up without a father. His father was an alcoholic, sadly left home when my dad was a baby, never made it home, uh, passed away. When my dad was about nine years old uh, from alcohol. And so there was just this big hole in my dad, kind of a lot of shame and, and that, but, but um, so there was a lot of conflict in my home and, and all, but after this change started, there was just a difference. And we would pray we'd never done that before and we'd pray as a family 
when fights would break out and things would happen. And it just began to, I began to see this difference. And so we started as a family, music was such a big part of my dad's life. And incidentally, the rest of us, we started playing music together as a family, singing in church, singing hymns, you know, and singing old, the old Bill Gaither songs. If anybody knows gospel music, he's kind of the father of modern hymns, really, in right. many ways. And so we sang music together in church and around Paducah, uh, where I grew up. My brother and I, my older brother Herbie and I started singing together, playing music. And uh, graduated from high school, went to Nashville and auditioned my brother and I to try to see if we could get a summer gig, summer job working at a, an amusement park that was built around the Grand Ole Opry called Opryland USA. I don't know if you've seen I heard of, it, of Opryland. It, was. So it was a really cool little park that had great music and I and my brother got hired to work there for the summer in a country music show. So I sang uh, for the summer, sang, got to sing on the Grand Ole Opry at 19 years old, which that was my dad's dream was to make it to the Opry someday. And he laid that dream down to be home, to, to kind of not go be chasing after that, to be a father. So uh, it was a big deal to get to bring my dad to hear me sing on the Grand Ole Opry, where I forgot the words to George Jones' song, He Stopped Loving Her Today, in front of Roy Acuff and everybody. But somehow I recovered and survived it and went on full circle to uh, end up getting to sing on the Grand Ole Opry kind of regularly now, which is a really cool thing growing up with it being such a big part of my dad's life and my life. But Went on to college, uh, set out as a pre-med major because my dad told me it's hard to feed your family playing a guitar. He had done that for many years. And so I went off to try to get a real job and that didn't work out so well because chemistry and calculus were a lot harder in college than they were at Heath High School in Paducah. And, um, and around that same time, someone introduced, took a cassette tape of a couple of my songs to the very guy who started out uh, inspiring me with his songs, Bill Gaither got a hold of a cassette tape of some of my music and gave me a call and offered me a publishing deal, a publishing contract and started writing songs for other people and um, got a chance to have several songs recorded by other artists, which then opened the door eventually for me to make my first record in 1987. Mm. Long time ago, I was 10 years old, not really, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, it was a long time ago. And, um, just from there, you know, it's been amazing. I'm a, you know, I was thinking about earlier today, that great Alan Jackson, where were you when the world stopped turning? He says, I'm just a singer of simple songs, you know, and, and I feel that way, you know, I, I write these songs and sing just my experience. Somebody told me a long time ago, man, when the experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument, I'm not very good with arguments. I'm not very good at arguing my point. Um, but I can tell you my story and sing my experience, you know, and, and as I've done that, God has, uh, has given me great, great blessing and favor to get to sit and talk to guys like, like yourself and, uh, and connect, you know, my life with a lot of folks through this music. Stephen, for you, is, is, the, is it the words that come first? And you're almost like working through your thoughts and your grief and your dreams and your faith as you write out the song and then you back into it with the music or does the music come? You hear it in, that, in the back of your mind yeah. and come backward with the words. Yeah. More, more often than not, it is words. Uh, it's, the, it's the inspiration of a thought, really. And that can be right, reading a book. It can be a, you know, a sermon. You know, it can be a conversation. It can be a moment. You know, I've tried to tuck my girls into bed year, a few years ago and, and they were three years old, two little girls that we had adopted from China that wanted me to dance with them and I was tired and it was late. And I just said, get in your pajamas and go to bed. And 
And then the, the, the sadness began to set in that I had missed a moment with him and sat down that night and wrote a song called, you know, Cinderella. I'll dance with Cinderella until the clock strikes midnight because I know she's going to be gone. And, you know, songs like that, just the moment of inspiration, you know, that then kind of makes me do what our, my mentor, Bill Gaither, told me. He said, it's, it's, it's all really about the inspiration, but, but there's also the time invested for really a great craft uh, of songwriting is, you know, going to be about 10% inspiration, about 90% perspiration, because you're going to have to take that inspiration and do the hard work of crafting something that's, you know, unique and, and, and really well crafted. And I think it's been, for me, usually that idea, that thought, uh, and then it, you know, sends me on a journey and, you know, music usually follows pretty quick an, an idea, you know, if it's a thought, I'll start singing, setting it to melody somehow, and then try to find an instrument real quick, grab a guitar, sit on a piano and see if I can turn it into a song. I mean, when I, so I, I'm an author and when I write blogs, articles, books, whatever it is for the audience, it doesn't work. Uh, but when I write for my heart and for like my son, if I write something like, man, I wish Jack would read this someday. Oh, yeah. And I just yeah. lay my heart on the page and then I turn it into the publisher. Boom. The thing blows up. So I'm, yeah. I'm just curious when, when you write, who are you writing for? Yeah, you're right. I think I am imagining the person uh, riding along in their car, going to work or, you know, maybe sitting at home. Um, just, dealing with life with good, bad, ugly, hard, sad, pain. Um, and, and I'm, I'm kind of seeing them in my best songs. I think sometimes, you know, we, in in you know, as people of faith who try to make art, you know, there's this thing about, you know, singing, writing, for the audience of one, you know, ultimately the, the giver of all good gifts and the creator who gave us, who invited us into co-creating, uh, you know, that amazing process, whether it's a book or a blog or a song or whatever, you know, so I'm, you know, sometimes depending on the theme of the song, it might, if it's a song, a prayer, then I'm, you know, I'm writing it to, to God. But I think there's always that sense that there is, there's going to be somebody listening to this, at least I hope there is. And I hope that this is connecting with them. Uh, in a way that sort of a friend just pulled up a chair, not somebody came to give him a sermon or a lecture, but somebody just pulled up a chair and said, man, me too. You know, let's talk about it. <laughs> that is so good. The, the words me too. When, when you can share your heart with somebody and thinking like, man, they may turn away and run away after they hear what I'm about to say to them. And then when they respond with the words, me too, yeah, that's yeah. when it's on. Steven, you, you've had, I believe, and correct me when I'm wrong, 49 number one hits. That is actually correct. Very good. Good, good on the number there. Yes, sir. That's oh, right. I'll miss one of these, man. So hang with me for a little bit longer. 59 Dove Awards. That's the number that I'm told. Now, you know, I've never, I've never gone through and uh, tallied it myself, but, you know, managers and PR people, they like those numbers. So we'll go with it. And then five Grammys. That's probably a number you do know and probably a number you can tally up to. Yeah. So the question is twofold, man. Number, number one is out of all that, incredible success and impact what's been the best part about this journey professionally and in the next breath what's been the hardest part about 49 number ones 59 to five grammys all the success all the travel all the things that have come come alongside of it well the best part is remember the movie and we've all quoted this and it's one of the best you know lines in a movie ever 
of of my favorite movie of all time is one of the best ever made chariots of fire wow. and you know eric little says debating with his sister who says you know you need to go to china and forget this silly running business you know and um, he says to her you know god made me fast and when i run i feel his pleasure uh, when i play music when i create art that's pure and just from my heart it's like you know me getting hitting the stride and feeling like god's going there goes my boy i made him i made him for that you know we all love that as parents you mentioned your you know your your son i mean when we see our kids do something that they're taking joy in and you feel the joy of your your parent you look in the stands and you see them just like beaming you know and you might have maybe little league where you just hit a, a an accidental single but they're they, they don't care they're just you know they're just loving it were you in the crowd when i was playing man because that sounds about what over <laughs> no it was me it was, it was just, we share the same we, we should have been on the same team uh the bad news bears but um but it's it's that sense you know that man I, this is what God gave me the gift for and made me for. And then when you hear somebody say, man, it really encouraged me, you know, it met me where, where I'm, where I'm at. Uh, thanks for being that friend. Thanks for being that, you know, soundtrack, you know, and help me encourage me in my faith. I mean, I'm immediately thinking of all those who have done that in my life, you know, pastors and authors, people I'll never meet the A.W. Tozers and Dietrich Bonhoeffers and the Chuck Colson's that I did get to meet and spend time with, you know, that, that have done that in my life. And I think, wow, really? I got to be, I mean, good news. They don't really know my heart and know me, but from what they know that's come out of it, that, that has the goodness, you know, of God on it. But that's been the, the best part for sure. And the awards are great and fun and they last 15 minutes and, you know, Grammy and the Grammy goes to, and that feels like the king of the world for, you know, 15 minutes, but that leads to what's the hardest part. And I read this recently and I thought it was just so fascinating because somebody was talking to Bono, who Bono is one of the, you know, the biggest rock star in the world, arguably. And, and he doesn't ever strike me as a particularly humble guy. And not, not that he strikes me as arrogant, but he's always got the cool glasses and he's just cool. And he's the epitome of cool. But somebody said, you, you have humility about you and the way you go about things. And, and he said, you know, it's a, I've learned it's a very fine line between humility and insecurity and insecurity really can mask itself very well as, as humility. And he said, I'm not sure I'm very humble, but I'm really insecure. And I thought Bono is insecure. You know, it's like even him. Um, I think the challenge, you know, that comes with success of any kind of what we do that immediately brings with it pressure, expectation from without and from within, how do I follow this up? You know, what are the expectations now? How do I deliver? You know, how do I, you know, deliver on what people now perceive me to be? You know, I've, I've created, you know, I've done this and people perceive something about who I am. I know the real story. I know the frustration, the anger, the hurt, the confusion sometimes, you know, the times that I've, you know, prayed the prayer, you know, God, I believe, help my unbelief, you know, and yet I'm going to write this song. I can tell everybody else sometimes really powerfully and I mean it. I'm so convinced of it for others, but believing it for myself, you know, sometimes and really having that sense. So those are, those have been some of the, the challenges that for sure come along with that great success and opportunity, you know, staying connected with my family, staying plugged in when there's all these opportunities, never, a, never a lack of opportunities to do good things, but are we doing, the, am I doing the best things, you know, am I doing the most, most important things with the time I've got. So that's been, those have been the challenges. 
Well, as you and I are talking right over my head and over my shoulders, you're looking at my family. And, and those are the little human beings that I work so hard for. So yeah. they're, they're, they're why, man, I write and I work and I travel and I speak and I, I do podcasts because I believe we can change the world for a better one life at a time. And I want it to, to be better for those kids. You, you had three perfect little kids. You had the life was set, man. The family was done. I have four, you had three, it's over. Yeah. And then you go, I believe you were in Haiti. Mm. And uh, was it your oldest Emily who's, who said, mama, like, I, I think we have room for more kids in our family. Can you share that story? Absolutely. Yeah, it was Emily. And I wasn't in Haiti. It was my wife actually on a trip with her. I was on tour. I'll never forget because they actually got stuck in Haiti. Uh, there was a, uh, a, a senator had been shot. And there was rioting. And my wife's calling me, you know, from whenever she could get to a phone. This was way back, um, you know, 22, three years ago now. So uh, she was telling me, you know, that we don't know what's going on. And we got accosted. Our car got surrounded by guys with machetes and looking very angry. And we kind of got detained for a while. I mean, it was intense. So they were there. But in the process, my daughter, Emily, who was about 11 at the time, spent time with kids that didn't have a family, orphans. And she came home from that trip deeply marked. She's always been a remarkable young lady. And she just said, mom and dad, there are kids in the world that don't have a family. They don't have, look what we have. We have this home. It's beautiful. Got plenty of room in my bedroom alone. We put some bunk beds in here. We could put two or three more kids in this house. And, you know, we need to do something about it. We need to adopt some kids that need a family. And of course, you know, what parent, you know, doesn't want to respond right to that. Cause that's beautiful, you know, things coming out of your daughter's heart, but you know, that's not going to happen. Cause my wife, you mentioned we had three kids and, people heard me in concert, I would always say, you know, we have three kids. We named Eeny, Meeny, and Miney, and we ain't having no mo, because that was it. So we were done. And uh, we were serious about that, because it was a lot, and I was busy, and I'm traveling all the time. And But we began, my daughter, Emily, began to pray. She said, Mom, Dad, I think this is really something you need to pray about. This is our 11-year-old, you know, talking about out of the mouths of babes, and she starts just working on us. And and eventually, we just, I'm I'm prayerful and thinking, gosh, I would be pretty epic, you know, and, but mom's home, the one going, yeah, and you're going to go on tour and right. I'm going to be the one raising, you know, more children when we've already got everybody in school out of diapers, all of that. But God, long story, amazing, you know, story told short, we found ourselves March of uh, 2000, 20 years ago, we were in China uh, meeting our daughter, Shohana Hope, a little girl. Uh, you know, that didn't have a family about seven months old um, and was placed in our arms and our lives were changed uh, exponentially more than hers. Hers was changed in that moment. She went from hopeless to hopeful and belonging, uh, you know, no name to our name, you know. Um, and it was this incredible picture of, you know, especially for my wife of just what God had done for us. You know, it's just trying to grapple with this mystery of what we call the gospel and God showing us love. And now all of a sudden my wife's going, this is it. This is, this is as close as we're ever going to get, you know, to, to what God did for us. So that transformed our lives. Needless to say, um, what it would do then is, you know, not just in there, but we'd come home with our daughter, meet families who would immediately, as soon as we got home say, you know, we'd love to adopt someday too. We just can't afford it because it's 20, 30, $40,000. And um, these are amazing people, friends, you know, school teachers and, mm -hmm. and people in, you know, church work. And we're going, you're telling us you would bring a child in your home. You just can't afford it. 
And um, we had just walked through the orphanage that our daughter came from, and we saw all the children who represented the millions all over the world, because now we had this, this new education of what the need and the reality was. And so we just began to try to help a handful of those families with the, with the finances. And out of that grew something called Show Hope that my wife and I founded about 17 years ago now, officially. And uh, we've been able to help almost 7,000 families uh, bring children home from 63 different countries all over the world. One of the greatest things we could have ever imagined, you know, the way we got woven into all these stories and um, so many little miracles that we've had just, just got to be kind of an honorable mention, you know, a little part of. And uh, it's been, been truly amazing. We ended up adopting two other daughters, Stevie Joy and then Maria Sue. Uh, and so, yeah, our family of five, you know, went to a family of eight, you know, very quickly. So it was pretty, pretty crazy. You, you whispered it out a few minutes ago. I'd like you to roar it out now. Dude, you're a busy guy. You know, I mean, the, the success, the, the, the touring, the interviews, everything else, you're on the road. You've got to produce. You've got to become the next best version of yourself every day out there. And that's taxing. And you got all these kids at home now. You got six of them. You got two little girls. You're trying to get to bed. You tuck them in. You run out of the, house, the, the room. You shut the door. And then you have this conversion-like moment where you realize, I might be missing it. And it's going to give birth to a song that is by far for me, Stephen, and you know, you got hundreds of songs, but my, my favorite is because I dance with my girl every time we hear it, Cinderella. So t tell the story of why you wrote the song Cinderella. Yeah, well, that was, uh, that was written exactly the story you told. I mean, it was, I was tired, it was late. We had uh, Stevie Joy and Maria, our youngest, were about six months apart in age, so they were kind of like twins. They slept in the same room, usually ended up in the same bed slept in matching jammies, but their favorite things were all the princess costumes that I actually, you know, knew exactly how to match the tiara with the shoes. The <laughs> I got it all down because that's how, you know, it was, it was an everyday occurrence at our home for them to get dressed up in their princess gowns and their costumes. And they were dressed up, wanted me to dance. And I just said, girls, not tonight. We're not, no story, no playing, no dancing, go to bed. It's late. I still got work to do. I'm tired you're not tired, but you need to be. So go to sleep <laughs> and um, got them in their beds. And then, and I was just, I was irritated. I mean, I was just frustrated, you know, it was, and I didn't like the way I was feeling the way I was, you know, just responding to them. And then I just sat and thought, man, I just blew it. You know, I had this moment to spend with my girls to enjoy just the beauty that they are and the wonder and the, you know, the fun and dance with them. I mean, <laughs> could have taken two minutes, you know, just to take a moment, but I just was in too big of a hurry. And, and so I sat down in my little studio office and just heart very heavy. Just thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to forget this next week. I'll do the same thing. I know me, you know, it feels very real right now. So I'm going to write a song. Those are kind of my little sticky notes, you know, I stick them on my heart and go, don't forget this, you know, and God showed me something in that moment. You got only so many moments with your little Cinderella's. They're going to dance, you know, twirl around now in that gown, but the clock's going to strike midnight and um, they're going to dance out the door and they're not going to really want to dance with you anymore. There's going to be some, you know, stinky hairy leg boy <laughs> if they want to dance with or something. And so I wrote the song that night and played it for my wife the next morning. And I said, you know, it's a work in progress because I'm never finished with a song in one sitting. I'm always going to, you know, you know, mess it up several times before I get done with it. And played it for her and my manager who was, who'd come over for a meeting and they both, 
you know, I'm looking at the words I look up after I'm done and they got tears in their eyes. And my wife says, if you touch that one, I'm going to break your fingers. That one's done. Don't mess with it. You know? So I dance with Cinderella while she's here in my arms. Cause I know something the prince never knew. All too soon, the clock will strike midnight. You know, it was very special, has continued to be, you know, now for us and our journey, it was about a year and a half after that, that, that our youngest Maria, who one of the, you know, one half of the inspiration of that song, uh, went to be with Jesus, went to heaven, May of 2008. So uh, 12 years ago, um, this month, which is always a really hard month, you know, for us in that it's, you know, that month of Maria's birthday, Maria's homegoing day and, uh, and Mother's Day. So it's always especially hard for Mary Beth. But, you know, that song really, <clears throat> I was at first thought it would probably be too hard just to sing it. I'd have to kind of retire it and say that represented that. But, you know, I just, you know, the clock will strike midnight, she'll be gone, you know, all of that. And, and yet, you know, one of the really amazing things about that song is it really has taken on, if possible, an even deeper meaning for me. Yeah, I imagine. You know, because it is a song that I still sing, decided to keep singing it. I changed the very last line. And now instead of saying, you know, the clock, clock will strike midnight, she'll be gone. I now sing. But the truth is the dance will go on. You know, I know that. I believe that. And that's the hope that has kept us breathing, kept us alive in all of this is that the story isn't over. You know, Maria was, had just turned five when she went uh, to, when she left this earth, but we, our faith, the songs I've written all these years, the hope that I have, the experience that I have tells me that that's not the end of the story as hard and painful and we're not over it. And we're never going to be, you know, you, John sharing me your own story of suffering and, and you carry that with you through your life. And you know the the scars and the 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 weight and the reminders, but um, you also realize and see that you know God takes all of that. It's been my experience, and as we trust Him with it, um, and create some pretty amazing, beautiful things out of those scars and out of those heartaches and and wounds on our heart and soul. So um, this song is kind of represents that. Cinderella now for me because I sing it because I know I'm going to dance again you know with and I look forward to you having that dance with your your Cinderella your, your I, my date I think everybody's got a date mine's mine's January 17th 1987 man that date that changed everything that happened thereafter when yeah. I got burned your date with ultimate this what you refer to as the ultimate unfixable yeah it's a great way to recognize what has happened here May 21st 08 where were you when you found out that your daughter had been hit by a car? Well, we were at home. I was at home. Were we were there? all here. Yeah, we were all here because um, it happened at our home in, in our driveway. So that was, you know, which was part of the devastation of the whole situation because our son was involved. And so it was it was layers and layers of, of you know, devastation and, and sadness and and trauma and all of that. So um, we've had a lot to walk through and work through because we were all there and witnessed and experienced. Stephen, my question then is, I think our, our Christian listeners want to know where was God for you? 
I think our spiritual listeners want to know where was God for you. And I think the atheistic listeners want to know where was God for you, man. Yeah. And so as you bring everybody's same heart together around this tragedy, a five-year-old baby girl being hit by accident by her oldest older brother, you guys being home, fighting for her life, airlifting her to the hospital, nobody can quite bring her back. And so the question all of our listeners want to know is, man, where was God for you? And so I'm asking too, where, where was God in this moment for you, Stephen? Yeah. Well, that is a, uh, a very complex and deep, deep question. Great question. And a great thing. I'm utterly convinced of it. God does not shy away from it and uh, is not offended by it, which that's, you know, that's the start even right there is, is it even okay to answer that or ask that, or am I going to get struck by lightning or do I have to abandon faith in order to ask a question that sounds that, you know, uh, doubtful or, or whatever. And, um, as I wrestled with it, a friend of mine gave me a, a picture of a horse <clears throat> and it was a horse being, uh, restrained and it had this wildness in, in its eyes and it was pulling and tugging you know, to the point of, you know, blood at the corners of its mouth from the, from the bit and bridle in its mouth and just trying with everything to charge in to, you know, in, in, in forward into something. And then as the, as the picture panned out, he realized that though it's the horse itself holding itself back from charging into this, this situation, into this thing. And what, what really I have settled in my heart on with that is that God was and is there in every one of these darkest moments of our lives and our souls. Otherwise he's not God and we need to chuck the whole thing because if God isn't as he says he is, and the Bible says he is always there, every ever present, um, then, then he's not really God. If he took a break, if he took a nap, if he turned his head, um, if it was, oh, wow, how'd that happen? You know, if it's true that none of that takes God by surprise, and what do you do with that? And I believe that for reasons that we will not understand until heaven, that God in times restrains even himself from charging in and ending every, every evil thing, every wrong thing. Although I believe he could if he did, because otherwise, again, he wouldn't be God, but I believe he's there. And obviously, theologically, how do you unpack that? What do you do with that? What do you do with the questions? I'm sitting here talking to you today because I believe God was there with us, that God has continued to be with us. He hasn't always made sense. He hasn't always explained himself. I do believe that he wept greater than we ever could have imagined weeping because God created the life of our daughter Maria, and he knew the devastation of our family, but did not charge in and end every evil. Scripture says if, you know, if, if God were to crush every evil and wrong thing, who could stand? None of us would draw another breath, you know, reality. But for reasons we cannot understand, God was there with us. He has sustained us and the story isn't over. And I believe that with all my heart that God is going to redeem every Every broken thing is going to be made whole. Every, every tear is going to be wiped from our eyes. But in the meantime, God doesn't sit back. One thing I do know is he didn't sit back with his arms folded going, well, that's just how it is. I believe God weeps with us 
And he tells us that in scripture. And until that day when he wipes every tear from our eyes and we don't weep anymore. And um, so that's what has sustained us, the hope and the belief that that's, that God's with us. First of all, I just appreciate your honesty around such a painful subject still. Hmm. It, it, it's not like, well, it's been a year, man. Like, yeah. You never get over the loss of a child. And I got a lot of listeners and a lot of your friends who have lost a child recently, Stephen. Yeah. Was there something you did as a family that you would recommend we do as a family? When, when, when our families lose a child, when there's an empty spot around our dinner table, when there's a stocking with a name on it that no longer has a child that is there to draw things from it. What, what did you do as a family that you're like, man, you know, we are glad looking back on it. We at least did this because there are a lot of people right now longing for their next step. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, when we took a vase, we had read somewhere where somebody took a vase out in the, out in the driveway and shattered it because that's what happened, you know, to your lives and to your heart. And then, took it back in and glued it back together and set it up on a table on a counter and you see it with the cracks and the, it won't hold water anymore. It's going to leak, you know? Um, but, but that's what you are and you're going to leak. Your life's going to hopefully leak whatever's poured into it. So keep pouring hope and, you know, trust in, in God's faithfulness and, and love for each other. Um, so we did that. The first attempt, my wife took a vase that, well, I think it was the vase's fault and it was her fault because she threw it with such force and fury and maybe the constitution of the vase. It was tiny dust particles when she got finished with it. So there was nothing to glue back together. So we had to go a couple of rounds with that. But, um, you know, we, we have continued to make a point of, um, obviously, celebrating Maria's life, yes. uh, telling the story. You know, we made a decision as a family to talk about, you know, you, you mentioned that you ran kind of from your story or, you know, tucked your story, hid it away. And we have wrestled with how much do we tell, you know, I've written a book, Mary Beth's written a book, I've written songs, you know, at a point it's like, okay, we don't want to be just the grieving family, but also just the importance of continuing to share our story uh, and remember, you know, what, what this gift in our life was knowing that, again, the story is just not over yet. I think as we keep telling each other that and reminding each other, this is a chapter in a story, a very small chapter of a very amazing story. So we're going to keep remembering that chapter is important, but it's not the end of the story. When I look at what you've done with Maria's Big House of Hope, and, and uh, you talk about the story continuing, just mm -hmm. in, in a sentence, describe for our listeners what the, the Big House of Hope is. Well, it's an amazing place in China. Um, that we have had the opportunity to care for thousands of children that are medically fragile, who are orphaned, um, many who wouldn't have lived otherwise, and some that come and have come there and passed away um, because of their just their condition, but also have been loved and cared for in that place. We know of uh, eight or 900 that have been adopted. They're in families now that wouldn't have otherwise survived. Uh, sadly, one of the realities of that, the seasons that change, we are uh, opportunities in China have changed dramatically, even before COVID-19, things changing there, geopolitical concerns and just the opportunities there. So that work is uh, kind of coming to a close at this point, or at least that chapter. So that's been a grief and a sadness, but also we see, you know, thousands of lives that have been impacted and will go on to continue to be impacted. And we believe even the care in China has happened, has changed because of what God allowed us to do there for a while. Well, yeah, it's impacting lives, not only for this generation, but for generations and for eternity. 
All right, my friends, we're going to get back to this conversation with the great Stephen Curtis Chapman here in a few moments. But before that, I wanted to give you some exciting news. Here we go. My second book, it's called In Awe. If that is news to you, uh, my friends, we need to have a conversation. The second book is called In Awe. It became an instant number one national bestseller. I want you to consider grabbing your copy today. Why wait? Why delay? Go to readinawe.com. And while you're there, check out some of the early praise from peers and community members. It's a cool page. You're going to love it. Some of you have been there already. Go there again. It's at readinawe.com. It's a cool site representing a phenomenal book. You're going to love it. Readinawe.com. And now back to my brother, my friend, his name, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Today, man, you wrote a song you called Together. Yes. We'll get through this. Yes. Uh, that could be played in any season, but it sure seems like it might be playing nicely and loudly during a pandemic and during the beginning of a global recession. So talk about why you wrote the song together. We'll get through this. Well, I really, you know, told you earlier about writing songs, you know, thought, an idea, something hits you and you go write a song because there was just that idea, that inspiration. And I was inspired walking by my television at the beginning of this crazy, crazy devastating time for so many lives and so many people and i'm so sorry for all of us that have been impacted but some so tra tragically and, and in such a deep way but i was in the midst of that dark cloud that kind of has come and hovered over our country our world i heard these words together we'll get through this we need each other we have to we have to work together. We have to believe together. We have to hope together, together, together. And I was like, that is not a word that I've been hearing anybody on my television saying. It's usually you're over there and I disagree and let's fight and let's, you know, go to go to battle. And and I'm thinking, what is it they're talking about together? And they and, and it actually seems like there's really an attempt being made. And there was something so inspiring, beautiful for me. You know, it's like that's what we were made for. We're created for relationship you know, with God and with each other. And so there was, there was truth in that kind of eternal truth coming out of my TV set, even from mouths that don't, aren't usually talking about it. And I just took that inspiration. It was kind of like a little, little ray of light I saw in a, in a crack in the door, just got cracked open with this idea that maybe we need each other. Maybe we need to look at each other, not as the enemy, even though we might think and believe real differently, but maybe we need each other in this process. And I thought maybe a song could kick the door open a little further. You know, there's a little light. Maybe we can get a little more light in. And so I ran off, grabbed my guitar and started singing. You know, I can see the panic in your eyes. I know you can see it in mine. You know, we're both, we've never been through anything like this. We've been through some crazy stuff and nothing like this. Um, I'm afraid, I'm scared, but I got one thing I'm gonna hold on to in the midst of this. I'm gonna grab hold of your hand. We're gonna do this together because that's, that's how my family and I have survived these last 12 years. It's just been together. Cause I believe together we'll get through this. Together, no matter what it is. There's no valley too deep, no river too wide, no mountain too steep. We can't climb together. We got all we need. Together, just watch and see. And so I wrote the song and thought I need some people to help me sing this song because uh, I can't write a song about together and not have some people do it together with me and reached out to uh, 
uh, a friend I'd only spent a couple of different times with Brad Paisley, who I'm a huge fan of his songs, his playing, his singing. And um, we had done a Glenn Campbell tribute concert together. We're both huge fans of Glenn Campbell. When he passed, we, uh, we joined together and bonded over our love for Glenn's music and guitar and picking and singing. And uh, we said, hey, let's do something together someday. And I guess that someday came. I reached out to Brad through a mutual friend. I didn't even have his number or email. I, I didn't want to bug him for that, you know. And it's like, maybe someday we'll connect. And reached out and thought, man, I know you're so busy. Your TV commercials with Peyton Manning, <laughs> you know, Country Music Awards hosting. You got no time for a, you know, hillbilly from Kentucky. And he <laughs> responded and said, man, I am honored that you thought of me. I would love to do this. Let's let's do it. Let's make it happen. So from his quarantined studio, he did his recording, sent it over to me. And then we talked on the phone about who else we need to get some, some female voices. We need to get some other people involved. And Lauren Elena, her name came up from a mutual friend, somebody that knew her and said, man, you know, I think she might be great on this. And yeah. I had watched her American Idol journey, love her voice, love her spirit. She's a, a Christian. I've seen her be very open about her faith. And I thought, man, let's see if she'd be interested. Maybe she's heard of me. You know, if she grew up singing in church, she might know my, my name. She was, <laughs> she was very, very thrilled. Couldn't believe it. My family's going to freak out that I'm singing on a Stephen Curtis Chapman song. So she came to the, you know, she did her little recordings in her studio. And then at, at, to cap it all off, I thought, man, I wish I could put a gospel choir on this song. It needs that power and that passion, you know, that only a gospel choir can bring. And couldn't do that in social distancing times. So I did the next best, best thing, and I got the gospel choir in one person, and that's Tasha Cobbs Leonard, who's an amazing singer, amazing worship leader. So she's got the power, brought, the, brought church. She took us to church on the song. So um, that's how it all came, to, came together. And not only has it come together, it is beautiful. Sometimes when people write a song to almost spark a movement, it just it's, it comes across cheesy. Uh, this is not cheesy, man. It is a great song. It's out today. I can't encourage folks strongly enough to go check it out, to download it, to buy it. And the proceeds, I believe, also support worthy organizations. You want to talk about that? Steve? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, with musicians are some of the, and artists are some of the hardest hit right now. Um, you know, not only myself, my two sons who have an amazing band, Colony House, um, they are feeling the effects and, and they're, they're dads right now. And they got three of our grandbabies, three of our six, you know, reside in the home of musicians. And so we're all impacted by it and representative of a lot of people who that's their livelihood is gatherings. It's getting with people who love music and, and, you know, so it has impacted a lot of people, especially here in our community in Nashville and in this area, but all over the world, as we thought about, there are a lot of really worthy things and a lot of good things that people are doing to raise money. But, uh, since I'd brought artists together, I thought maybe we could help encourage some of those artists that really are struggling families, little, you know, little ones that are trying to feed and put food on the table. And there's no work, there's no touring, there's no concerts, no tickets. So um, we're going to help uh, artists through the Gospel Music Association, which I've been, of course, part of for many years and a fund that they've set up to help artists that are just really in desperate need and then uh, or artists and crews and all the people involved. And then also the uh, Opry Trust Fund, the Grand Ole Opry Trust Fund has set up a fund to help so many of their musicians that have given the world incredible songs that, you know, are really struggling just to survive right now. So just trying to, you know, care for some of those folks. I appreciate you doing it. And Stephen, I know you're, you got a role. We got a quick wrap up round of Live Inspired 7, we call it. They are seven simple, straightforward questions 
All right. One word to one sentence answers will do. So my friend, here we go. This is the, the final stretch. Cherry to fire playing in the background. Right. White shorts, white shirt on, man. Let's finish drawing together. Here we go, man. <laughs> By the way, I've never told anybody this, but when I was in the hospital, mom and dad would have to leave every single night and it broke my heart every single night. And to bring me some solace every single night, eventually they brought on a little radio, this little red radio. We had one tape, the good old days, man. So we had a tape. Okay. And it was Cherry to Fire. They would put it in and that song. The, the Oh, man, yeah. So every time I hear it, I think of the movie. But I really think about those days. And um, wow. now I see it as just light. But it used to remind me of like the darkness of being by myself as a kid. And yeah. man, it's beautiful music. And now um, I'm reminded of how beautiful that season was even for me, even in the hospital bed. So uh, let's finish drawing together, man. We'll hold hands as we cross the finish line. All right. Stephen Curtis Chapman, what is the best book you have ever read? Uh, well, of course, the Bible. We got to give that, you know, of course. But uh, I'm going to say Loving God, Chuck Colson, really impacted me big time. Perfect. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy in Paducah, Kentucky, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today as a man in Franklin, Tennessee? Um, wonder. I was a boy who loved wonder. It's probably why I started playing music and writing songs. And Stephen, if you're home, caught fire, you have your family out, yeah. your pets are out, everybody's on the front yard safe, man. But you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one thing. You're gonna be safe in doing so, but you gotta run back in and grab one item. What's the one item that Stephen Curtis Chapman is bringing back outside of the house? Man, that's a, that's a good one, gosh. And, and I can think of, you know, a lot of different things. Um, yeah, I started to say my computer because it's got all my song ideas and all my songs, but, um, but I'd say, gosh, I gotta go back in and get my guitar because uh, there's still more, more songs and more things that need to be, and I process everything with a guitar in my hand. So I need to process that with a guitar in my hands again. Awesome. Uh, we'll play some music while the, uh, the smoke goes up. Here we go. Uh, if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day, just imagine a perfect day with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be spending a day with on that beach, just uh, taking it all in? Um, well, again, the given is, of course, my bride of 36 years, Mary Beth Chapman. We have journeyed through so much, uh, so much life, so much together. Um, that being the given, you know, I have always been a fan and, and just of the heart and soul of one who suffered so greatly and came through with such great faith, Corey Ten Boom and her story, the hiding place and just an amazing story of her, uh, life through Holocaust. And she's, I've always said, if I could sit with somebody and just kind of ponder life, that would be pretty amazing. Mm. What's the best advice that Corey or anybody else has ever given you? Bloom where you're planted. Told so many people that, you know, and you make music, you do whatever you do. You think if I could just get there, if I could get to the big stage, if I could just get to someday do a, you know, podcast with John O'Leary, then I would have made it. But that huge. Yeah, that's big time. But, <laughs> but to say, you know what, right where I am right now, um, this matters. I'm going to take this opportunity right here. And uh, that's, that's about as good, I think, of advice as I can give anybody. It is odd that we think when you get the Grammy, when you get the podcast with O'Leary, whatever it is that you made yeah. it, and the reality is the following day you wake up and here we go, man, get your shoes back on. Yeah. Time yeah. to go to work. Bloom where you're planted. I love it. Two more questions. We're almost there. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Uh, just, just take your time. 
enjoy, try to enjoy the moments because they're going to go by way quicker than you can even imagine. Final question for our guest, Stephen Curtis Chapman, is this. Stephen, it has been said that all great people, that includes you, by the way, my friend, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I get a little emotional with this one because I've often said, when people have said, what's your favorite song? And I say, well, I can't pick a favorite, but I can tell you if, if I got one song, if they're going to put one lyric on your you know, headstone um, of all the things you've written and said, what would it be? And it's incredibly simple, but incredibly true. And it is God is faithful. That's it. Stephen Curtis Chapman, God is faithful. You are also as faithful, man. I'm, I'm just humbled to be with you. I love your music, love the heart that composed it and the reason why you do what you do. So thank you for spending part of your day with us. Thank you for your impact. And thank you for inspiring me to dance with my daughter every single time she asked me, every time, dude. So way to go, brother. It's you, man. I really, I'm grateful. And uh, my friends, that is the great Stephen Curtis Chapman. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, I certainly hope you enjoy today's episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. As Stephen Curtis Chapman mentioned, the coronavirus pandemic may force our world to be physically apart, but we... My friends, you know this by now, we are in this truly together. As you may know, earlier this week, I launched my second book. It's called In Awe in a much different way than we ever thought possible. And yet today, it still calls for a celebration of life. So this Friday, May 8th at 7 p.m. Central, I'm still going to be hosting a party. You are welcome to join me. You don't need a ticket, but you do need to RSVP. So join me right now, my friends, at the In All launch party. We're going to do this virtual style. It's going to be a party. I'll have some surprising special guests. We'll share some of their special stories. We'll talk about the book and so much more. So join me now. You can learn more at readinaw.com. Again, the party is available for you right now. There's no cost to get in, but you got to RSVP. Go to readinaw.com. Awe.com. It's going to be a celebration of life and ultimately leaders, servants, listeners, and friends. It's a celebration of your life and the truth that the best of it is yet to come. So for this time and until Friday night, seven o'clock central, this is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Still live inspired and live in awe.